0: Hi, and welcome to the Ready for Polyamory podcast. My name is Laura Boyle, and as always, I'm your host. This week, I'm here with the author of my favorite, not technically a polyamory book of the year, Minna Dubin, to talk about her book Mom Rage, which came out on Tuesday. And honestly, if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, you know that my identity as a mom is pretty inextricable from my identity as a a woman as a polyamorous person, as somebody who tries to relate to people. And so on this podcast that's entirely about relating, I wanted to have this author who talks about systems of relating and how they are and aren't serving mothers. Come on and chat with me a little bit. Her book does contain a polyamorous mom as one of the stories that she tells, as well as talking sort of systemically about issues that face mothers. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear the interview that I had with her, uh, and we'll have that in just a moment. Before we get to that, in sort of housekeeping news for Ready for Polyamory, um, I've got three classes coming up in October. I've got a Polyamory and the Family Summit that I'm participating in with my friend Elizabeth Cunningham on October 7th. On October 9th, I am teaching at Wicked Grounds again. I'm teaching narrative age play there. Uh, and then October 15th, I am running a polyamory and cohabitation workshop with Leanne of Polyphilia blog. Uh, and all of those tickets and information can be found in the show notes as well as on my website's event page at readyforpolyamory.com slash events. So I think that's all of my housekeeping stuff. So without further ado, here's my interview with Mina Dubin, author of Mom Rage. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I enjoyed getting to fangirl a bit and talk to her. So, thank you so much for being with me today, Minna. And can you please introduce yourself just a little bit for my listeners?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm Minna Dubin. I live in Berkeley, California, with my husband and my two kids. And um, I'm a writer. And I just uh, wrote this book called Mom Rage, The Everyday Crisis of Modern Motherhood. And I'm super excited about your book because I got a chance to read this lovely
0: advanced copy, which you can see I've already slightly wrecked. Um, and partly that's because I have managed to read it twice because I'm that person. Partly it's also because <laughs> I'm also the person who leaves books on my bedside table, which sit under a window. And it's rained a lot this summer. Wow. <laughs> Well loved, let's
1: call I'm it that. Not
0: careful with my
1: things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I have really enjoyed it and I have read it twice because it resonated with me really deeply as a mom. Um and your book talks a lot about the ways that our society kind of fails to support mothers and the way that we react to that in ways that are reasonable but not always things that we talk about yeah and i really appreciated that because these sorts of unspoken and unexamined norms relate a lot to the stuff that we talk about here on the podcast Mm -hmm. um and you actually did have one non-monogamous mom in the book Mm -hmm. but what made you choose to include that
1: Well, that mom is in the last chapter, and the last chapter is about um, alternative family structures and support networks and the ways that moms can um, get support in lieu of actual structural support from the society. And, you know, I live in the Bay Area, and polyamory is everywhere. Um, And I really liked the idea of showing, you know, the way that polyamory in theory, (laughs) could support moms, you know? I mean, I think the, like, the idea is more adults per kid. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that polyamory necessarily will make that happen, but, like, I think that it offers one of the multiple routes to make that happen. And so it felt important to me to show this is one of the many alternative family structures that, could support mothers better than what's happening in the you know stereotypical nuclear family
0: right when i was living in a v we used to joke all the time that our base theory was always outnumber the children Um, yes yes which like i mean at some point we might have stopped doing that if we'd had more than two kids but we continue to have two kids and three parents so it works for us right (laughs) yeah and i know that lots of folks i've been surveying uh, lots of different polyamorous families and so I've been listening to people talk about their different family structures
1: Mm -hmm. and one
0: of the common threads is people noting that like well it's a really convenient way to continue to outnumber our children (laughs) yes
1: yeah and and the mom in the book you know that I'm not actually sure if she identifies personally as a non-monogamous person but she was in a non-monogamous relationship Mm -hmm. um and she just, you know, what felt, what seemed to feel really useful and amazing for her, like one was having family, like after getting divorced, that she had family, like her boyfriend and her boyfriend's wife and the wife's boyfriend, the the four of them would like have the, have like big meals together, like Thanksgiving, like it was this way to like create family. And then also just like, she talked about, the boyfriend and the boyfriend's wife, um, just asking her, how can we support you? And she noted that, like, it's a question that, like, her her ex-husband would have never asked that. How can I better support you as a mom? You know, mm-hmm. and just, like, sometimes it just takes a whole different setup to get, to get that kind of thinking happening. You know, I think that in, especially in, like, cishet uh relationships I think that it can be uh just very normalized for the mom to take on so 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 much more labor and so when you break up the family structure everything is up for grabs like you know who's gonna do what how's it gonna work out like everything gets to get restructured and I think that that can be really exciting and useful
0: One of the things that I really appreciated in your book is that you start examining some of the norms that underlie this idea of how motherhood works for people. There's an entire chapter on the idea of becoming a mom and how we socially read that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone in my hearing had ever laid that out for me. Mm -hmm. But as a mom, it was something I had experienced this like people talking to me in like hushed tones about like but don't you feel so magical now that you're a mother and I hadn't expected it until it happened to me and like older female relatives were asking me but don't you feel so and I'm like well I don't am I supposed to (laughs) Uh and so having this book sort of lay out that this is something that happens to a lot of us was really validating in a way that like I didn't necessarily expect and then was very pleased to find. Um, and I guess I'm just stating this really bluntly because I want people who feel like me to know that maybe they can pick this up and feel that way too. If you've been sitting there going, am I kind of a bad mom for worrying about this? There are big validating reads out there for you. Yeah. Um, And maybe can you tell us a little bit about what drove you to start writing this in the first place? Because it might speak to that a little based on the way you incorporated that into the early chapters of this.
1: Yeah. I mean, that particular, like what you were just talking about, I can like, I'll speak to that first as opposed Mm -hmm. to like the whole book. Um, That felt really important because you know, I've always written about identity and the way that identity affects relationships and like the like undercurrents of how race, class, class gender, sexuality are like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, affecting our everyday lives, our conversations, our like romantic relationships. And once I became a mother, I really it it, it felt like this overwhelming new identity, and I had never heard before anyone talk about motherhood as an identity and specifically as this term that I used, a power identity, mm. you know, one that gives or takes away power socially in the world. Okay. Um, And I really felt that it was, and, and I, th- and I think it's both. Like, I think that there is, that you get some power when you become a mother. Like, I feel like you almost become powerful because you like, you have to sort of take on this, um, you have this sense of importance because you're in charge of other people. And also because the world looks at motherhood positively. And so I think it's impossible also not to feel some of that. Like I did the thing that I'm supposed to do, you know, like I am the best version of, of woman or birthing person. Cause I did mm-hmm. that thing that the world says I'm supposed to do, but actually it's like this, it can be this really gaslighting experience because the world is telling you that motherhood is supposed to feel like X and then you get there and like your nipples are bleeding and like your vagina hurts and you're supposed to be back at work and Mm -hmm. you have to make dinner and you have to be in seven places at Like, it's just like, it's mayhem and it's hard. And I feel like the world, in that chapter, I talk about like, that all of your complexities like fade into just mother because that's how the world sees you because you have done you have completed your ultimate task of what the world wants you to do which is have sex and have a baby Mm -hmm. basically right that's like the trope that you're supposed to do Um, and I, I found that that like that squashing of my like complex like interesting professional sexual self, um, was like incredibly difficult and sort of painful. And so I wanted to write about that.
0: Well, and in some ways when people are willing to acknowledge those other layers, they're only willing to acknowledge them if it isn't inconvenient. Right? So if you're willing Mm -hmm. to completely ignore any of the parts of motherhood that are uncomfortable, then you can be allowed to do other things right like so i had my first child my son at the end of my 1l year of law school because it was not a planned pregnancy and so my timing was terrible do not get pregnant two weeks into your 1l year of law school (laughs) please i beg you it is the worst timing so i gave birth a week before finals and some of my professors gave me extensions. Mm-hmm. And some of my professors said, oh, well, you can have a week and then come in and sit the exam. <gasps> and so I was leaking out of everywhere. I was soaking through all kinds of protective fabrics and things (laughs) while writing exams. And it was like, you can still be a professional-driven person with goals. Totally. So long as someone holds your two-week-old baby outside, and when you're done with this 90-minute exam, you run outside and feed that baby.
1: Yeah. But also... That's so horrible that like you don't get more time. And I think that the whole world looks at postpartum as this incredibly inaccurately short time frame.
0: The female professors gave me until six weeks.
1: Yeah. And even, even six not weeks- That's not even I mean, I enough, but even, like, Yeah, even six weeks is not enough. But that just to note that it
0: was a gender difference. Yeah. But not even much of one, but.
1: Right. I mean I don't I can't remember the percentage right now but some you know very tiny percentage of men take like 10 leave if it's granted yeah Mm
0: -hmm. yeah and so like there is some thing of like oh well we can grant that mothers can also be professional and driven but only if they're gonna deny this maternal part of what they're doing because if you want to do all of it you have to do all of it in sort of the most brutal way possible
1: right which is what i was doing right then the system is set up for motherhood to be as brutal as possible Mm -hmm. currently and so like i could be simultaneously
0: polyamorous and a mother and trying to be a lawyer but only if I did all of it sort of as intensely and horribly as possible (laughs) yeah and so like what I ended up with was a divorce from one of my partners who didn't want to parent and with a brutal end of my 1L year and a baby who was wonderful but challenging and mm-hmm. I was like oh but I'm really lucky because he's being born right before the end of the school year. So I do actually get 3 months off if I just make it through these exams.
1: Wow. And that and that's how you get, you know, time off.
0: And that <laughs> is how American healthcare works. If you
1: plan it perfectly. <laughs> Not that you planned it, but yeah. but like that was my luck. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. It's yeah, hard. and
0: i read this and i was like this is so validating and correct that like well i did have a great support system my parents were local my meta was really helpful we all parented together yeah and still
1: and still right because there's Mm -hmm. like all the systems are not set up for this to be like a cared for experience Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and and so this like experience, it's it's called matrescence, right? The, the life mm-hmm. phase of becoming a mother, which rhymes with adolescence, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is the life phase of becoming a teenager. And um, matrescence is this like, you know, just this full identity tornado that takes place, which maybe would happen no matter what,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, to some extent, but then it gets like, Fully like compacted by the world seeing you, you know, as this one thing, and 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 as this one happy thing, as this one blessed thing, which is like, which is true, right? You are blessed, like you have this beautiful little baby, and like all this stuff is very difficult, and you have no support, and you have to be back at work, and like da 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 da. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I have this chapter on on matrescence and the gaslighting of mothers because it's just one of the many uh factors that make motherhood a anger inducing experience right so the Mm -hmm. book is called mom rage like it's real the book is about maternal anger and in a way each chapter is sort of like and this and this and this you know it's I'm sort of like building a case Mm -hmm. in a way for why moms are so furious right now and and matrescence the experience of matrescence is one of them
0: well and it's this sort of natural sense that That, what I think is natural that women kind of have building underneath this that we have the same kind of entitlement to our feelings that men have but culture from the outside is insisting that we don't and I think lots of people have internalize that external messaging that they don't have that right to it and so the underbubbling like i have the same right to this just keeps getting shoved down mm-hmm. and there's a lot in your book about how those two messages hit each other
1: yeah you mean specifically around anger
0: right and around how like anger gets transmuted into shame for a lot of people because of that external cultural messaging
1: right which is very gender specific
0: right because men's anger is considered justified and therefore is short-lived
1: right it's it's justified and and encouraged yep because angry men are seen as powerful Mm -hmm. and an angry dad is uh you know an an alpha he's the one getting the kids in line right but an angry mom is a bitch she gets punished she doesn't just get like she doesn't just get to be not powerful. She gets demoted in people's minds, right. An angry mom is an aberration that we should be getting rid of right. and And if motherhood is is the peak of, you know, for for women and for birthing people, uh, then being an angry mom is being a bad mom. and being a bad mom is the worst thing you can be,
0: right. How dare we be upset about really? justifiable social problems and cultural problems that have set us up for this situation and that's even not considering just this basic process of matrescence being uncomfortable like we are going through hormonal roller coasters with relatively little support Mm -hmm.
1: yeah and i mean i part of the reason i I wrote this book is was to highlight the structural Mm -hmm. uh inequalities and the systemic neglect because most of us don't necessarily see it we just see ourselves screaming at a kid for having to say tie your shoes tie your shoes tie your shoes tie your shoes in the 17th time we're like tie! you know yeah. Right. <laughs> and then, yeah and then and then we feel terrible mm-hmm. and we're like oh my god we, we go into this like shame spiral feeling terrible that we screamed and we're like, why am why am I such a bad mom? I'm screaming about tying your shoes when like it's really about much more than the shoe tying. That's mm-hmm. just like the little thing in front of you. Yeah, it's the tiny inciting incidents. Right. When really like aggravations and frustration and isolation and like invisible labor have all been building for like weeks in your in your nervous um,
0: system. Right. And in our different household structural issues where some of them are stronger in places where the household is strongly gendered in one way or another. And some of those you mentioned might be easier in non-monogamy and some of them might not. For some people, we've talked about this on the show previously, Mm -hmm. they might be exacerbated by non-monogamy because couples that open up without previously addressing those gendered norms and those moms handle the schedule. moms handle everybody's calendar yep moms handle the whole household's chores and activities and whatever when you throw on that everybody's now dating outside the household if mom is still handling everybody's calendar and dad still expects mom to handle all of those things suddenly not only do mom and dad have a relationship issue because mom is handling their relationship and dad's external relationship scheduling but it exacerbates everyone's sort of emotional ups and downs with themselves and the kids and the external partners.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would, you know, I think that polyamory or non-monogamy would, you know, it holds a lot of potential for, Mm -hmm. for support, but it it also like doubles or triples the amount of nav, like interpersonal navigation and communication that has to happen. So it's, it holds lots of potential but also is not is not like easy you know
0: nothing is a cure-all no anyway i just mention the things that we have brought up before as big sort of necessary early steps to remind people that i am not tooting a horn of like
1: please come convert (laughs) because that is never my message right like there's no message that's like Non-monogamy will save your motherhood experience.
0: (laughs) I wish. I wish all the things are like the magic bullet for this.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the chapters is called um, Better Policy. Yes. And because it's not just one thing, like one thing, whether it's non-monogamy or uh, a whole year of paid family leave, like no matter what the thing is, like one thing is not going to fix it. It is like a huge... Uh, you know, I want to say like surround sound thing. Like, in, we need support from so many different angles to make the experience of motherhood one that feels more supported and cared for. Right. If we could build a sampler plate of policies, we could create better early
0: childhood support and yes. better health care support and yeah. actually accessible mental health care. Yeah. And better policies that actually mean that parents of all genders get to stay home for a reasonable amount of time when children are infants. And then maybe with all of those supports in place, we'd have a much better shot at this.
1: Yeah. Yes. And there also needs to be like an entire cultural, like change around patriarchy.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, and all the things. like gender's anger is more accessible. Yeah.
1: Right. And white supremacy and classism, like really for motherhood to be, a better uh, situation, there needs to be like a whole cultural revolution.
0: <laughs> I mean, for lots of things, there need to be a cultural revolution.
1: Right. I welcome it. But and and that doesn't I'm not saying that there shouldn't also be all the policies that we all these like mother care policies that I advocate for in the book, we should also have them because policy does affect culture, just like culture affects policy. Mm-hmm. But it's, it, you know, it's not a one, an easy one step solution
0: maybe if we start with the policy we'll slowly start pushing culture towards some of these things
1: yeah I'm for it (laughs) I wish please yeah um wait I want to I wanted to go back to one thing that you said um oh about the bad mom thing yeah that I that that was really like that was my goal in writing this book more than anything else was to give moms relief and make them feel that they're not a bad mom because they're angry or because they rage that that doesn't make you a bad mom and that there's this larger thing happening that was like that felt like I mean I have a lot of goals with the book but that was like number one well
0: right because for the most part we aren't most of us have those moments and circle right back to doing the very best we can for the 30, 40, 50 times we say the thing calmly.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: I don't know a single mom who, and I don't mean single in the sense of like, we parent alone. I mean, any individual <sighs> yeah. mom who doesn't have the moment where it breaks, right? Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. facade cracks. Mm-hmm. And for most of us, it does to some extent feel like a facade at some point, even if yes. it's not every day.
1: And but the but the shame for that cracking like it's is enormous. so 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 deep. I talk mm-hmm. to moms who are in their seventies who still hold deep deep shame about the moment they rage. Like they can remember at least one particular moment, and then they'll share it with me or they'll share it with a friend after having read the book and they'll say, I never told anyone that before. And then their friend will respond with their rage story that they never told anyone before. It's just like, we hold the shame and we hold the secrecy of the stories because we feel so ashamed. So
0: I went to therapy with my mother after I came out as Uh non-monogamous. And this is one of those things that like, Adult children going to therapy with their parents is not particularly normalized, but it's something that happened in our family because my parents had a really bad reaction to me coming out as non-monogamous, but I just had a kid and it felt really important to me to like Mm -hmm. mend that relationship. And while we were in therapy together, the therapist we were seeing started talking to my mom about like the anger she was generally expressing about her life and the work that she was doing to maintain everybody's situation and I was like, what do you mean? I'm not angry about any of this. There therapist was like, but can you talk a little more about the things that you are feeling or that you think you're feeling? And eventually all of this underlying basically mom rage tumbled out over all of it. And it was the wow. most like, it was like the anger crying deep seated thing that led to both of us staying in therapy together for about a year to work through it together because I was experiencing these things as a new mom for the first time and she had so much of it as a mom of then 26 years Mm -hmm. to start working through and the two of us looking at it together was such a like interesting kind of bizarre lens yeah to do that together that just the two of us convincing each other that we both weren't bad at this because I wasn't finding any of it magical and she wasn't finding it magical anymore Mm, was really like deep and interesting. And I just think it's really important that people not just see that it's okay to be angry, but see that it is part of the balance of how things move to move through all of these emotions like whenever we're giving as somebody who talks about non-monogamy all the time people are always like well how do I stop being jealous you don't you get okay with the fact that we have all the quote-unquote bad emotions too and that none of the emotions are actually bad right Rage is one of the emotions that isn't bad even though we say it's bad all the time we have to figure out how to move through it
1: yes and if we stopped also putting so much pressure after well yeah but if we stop putting so much pressure on moms to experience motherhood as magical as you say and our expectations both of mothers and of ourselves as mothers and of motherhood was different and lower Mm -hmm. (laughs) then we would actually notice the magic because we Mm -hmm. weren't necessarily expecting every moment to be magical right you know it would be easier to find and to you know, hold up and be like, oh, this is magical, you know, because there is magic in motherhood for sure. There is.
0: It just doesn't all have to be curated to that point.
1: No. Yeah. And when it's expected, I think especially like ornery and people who are oppositional, such as myself, I'm like, you know, I I don't talk about the magical stuff quite as much because that's what mothers are supposed to talk about. And Mm -hmm. I just, I feel so irritated that I'm supposed to anything. And so I'm, I don't talk that like, I think I say it in the prologue of this book, like motherhood is beautiful. It is all the things. And I'm not talking about that because that's all that gets talked about. And this Mm -hmm. is not the book where I'm going to coo about motherhood and my children.
0: Right. I love watching my children right after they've fallen asleep. I will not be writing a book chapter about those moments.
1: Ever. right right and also those feel like wildly personal and like this like I, they, yeah there's something about all of that that feels very private mm-hmm. to me whereas like because I, I view the rage as being part of like uh, a lack of systemic structural support um it doesn't feel private It feels universal. Yeah, it feels, well, yeah, I mean, the sweetness is universal too, but it just feels like it's part of the culture, this rage. Whereas, like, my special sweetness with the kids, feels, like, very private in my house, you know, in a different way.
0: Yeah, and there are things where, like, once you've chosen which parts of it you're sharing, those are the parts you've chosen to share already, and the other parts are the parts that you have chosen to keep private, so you're going to continue doing that. Uh, people get to set their own boundaries about that
1: totally and and i think as someone who i mean oppositional is the wrong word but you know (laughs) pushes back against power structures i think is maybe a better phrase um you know everyone there's so many books about motherhood as the magical cooing narrative of motherhood Mm -hmm. right like those books aren't needed hundreds of (laughs) years of them exactly like they're there and i just feel like this is this is a book that is not there because this is what most people feel like is the private thing. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of feel like I've like flipped what's what feels private and special to me.
0: Yeah, look, if I want to coo about the beauty of motherhood, I will read the passage in Little Women where they look at Meg's (laughs) babies for the first time. I reread that Uh book every year because I'm a sentimental mess. Uh huh. And so I'll get to that chapter, and I'll go. Oh yes, it is the beauty of motherhood right here, yeah. captured in extremely sentimental 1860s prose. We're good. Oh my God, uh-huh. we cannot top that on that front. <laughs> if I want to talk about rage, I will go modern. We're good. Yeah, yeah.
1: Although I'm sure there was rage back then too, but I'm sure it's not a narrative that has been deemed worthy of uh you know uh what's the word publication publication and like uh retel- oral like oral history retelling that story you know preserving is the word i want to say it's they not a narrative barely, worthy of preserving
0: they were barely willing to publish people being like women being sentimental about their histories at that point I'm yeah i mean we're th- willing to publish us being open about reality at this point
1: i don't know if this book would have been published if we hadn't had the pandemic yeah you know, you I think, think everyone, all of a sudden, our, everyone under, everyone agreed for a moment that moms were allowed had to be mad. To
0: admit how difficult it is to be yeah. constantly at home with children, and so we got to look at it in detail.
1: Yeah, and they're publishing. I mean, the New York Times had multiple things about moms screaming, multiple pieces about mm-hmm. screaming and angry moms, and so I think it just got like to a cultural acceptance point Mm -hmm. where the idea of mom rage was accepted enough that it could be a book Mm -hmm. that someone would throw money behind this idea
0: (laughs) and i'm glad they did because me too i think a lot of us will take a good amount of validation from this regardless of whether people necessarily want to put it on the front of their bookshelf I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people will keep it on their bedside table and be happy about it.
1: Yeah, it's on my bedside table. Actually, it's on my husband's bedside table. I'm having him read it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I really appreciate you coming and chatting with me about this. Are there any sort of final thoughts you want to give folks before
1: I wrap this up? Well, one thing I just thought was, you know, I think it's important for listeners to know that you can feel rage and not be a screaming loud person. Yes. The first the first mom story that I tell in the book is about a mom who internalizes her rage and she is not screaming and yelling. And there's all these ways that we can internalize our rage. And sometimes we take it out on our own selves and not at our children or our partners uh, or the people around us. Um, so that feels important just in terms of people identifying with it that like... Mm-hmm. Rage comes out in all sorts of ways, and so it doesn't have to be loud in order to be rage. Um, yeah, I want to say go buy this book. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I think you you cannot read this book and not feel better about yourself as a mother.
0: I think that's pretty much true. Yeah, yeah. it really. In seeing the wide variety of different moms portrayed in it and the different stories that everyone shared with you and that you retold so vividly, I really appreciated the different lives that were shared in little snippets. The different children, the different mothers, the different bits and pieces of people's lives that came out pretty vividly off the page.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, including my own story Yeah, and, and the moms I interviewed, I tried really hard – to show experiences that weren't mine and to show that mom rage is affecting moms, like across the, like all the spectrums of like race and class and even like national lines. Like I interview moms in other countries and Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it just, it, I view mom rage as an international, like emotional crisis that's happening and it's affecting all moms, but not all moms have the same privilege in order to express it publicly But it's still affecting all moms.
0: So thank you so much for coming and chatting with me about it. Thanks for having me. I really hope that everybody goes out and picks up a copy of this because it's not just important for moms. People who love moms will also enjoy reading this and getting some perspective as to what the people they care about are going through. So thanks once again to Minna Dubin for joining me this week. Um, You can find links to purchase Mom Rage in the show notes. It's at booksellers everywhere this week. Um, And as always, you can find me at readyforpolyamory.com. Upcoming classes are at readyforpolyamory.com slash events. We've got three different classes coming up in the month of October. And my upcoming retreat in November still has a couple of spots available if you're interested in coming and joining me here in Connecticut for uh, an intensive weekend retreat to work on communication and relationship agreements, look up the information on my website and don't hesitate to send me a message about it. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you guys have a great week. I am back next week with Violet Fox to talk about polysaturation and ways to cope with it. Have a great week. See you next Thursday.